Good morning to 10 o'clock chapel and 10 o'clock online and 10 o'clock life center. The, the base passage we've been using these past several weeks in this series called The Good Work is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, verse 7 says, says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 7 says, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. The, the three words I want us to look at today is right there, kind of two-thirds the way into that, or three-fourths the way into that verse. Hopes all things. In fact, in my Bible, I'll just circle those, those three words. Love hopes all things. And those three words have more implications than, than I have time to, to preach on this morning, but I'll try. The good work of hope. Hope in a hopeless world. Hope in our hearts. And sometimes the best way to define a word is to tell you what that word is not. So let me do that first. Hope is not crossing your fingers and being wishful for a good outcome in the middle of uncertainty. Hope is not just kind of crossing your fingers, being very wishful for the best outcome or a good outcome in the middle of a very uncertain setting. That's not biblical hope. But that's how we use the word hope all the time, just kind of wishing for, for a good, good outcome. We say, I hope we get more rain this week. I, I hope I do well in my test. I would imagine several in this room have uttered that in your hearts recently. I just hope I do well in my test. I, I hope lunch is good today. I hope it's a short sermon. I hope my cat runs away while I'm at church. You know, good outcomes like, like that. But here's what hope is. Hope is God's work in your heart, that his promises are solid, and his goodness is present, and he's going to win. He's going to have the victory. That's, that's what biblical hope is. It's a work in your heart, deep in your heart, a good work, that his promises are set, they are secure, they are solid, and his goodness is always around you. His goodness is always present. And again, God is going to win. God will be victorious. You see, it's a confident expectation, not just wishful thinking. But let me say this, it's something that you can't produce. If you're, if you're feeling sleepy and are considering napping during the sermon, and you're not going to hurt my feelings if you do, please catch this before you fall asleep. You can't produce hope. God produces hope. And I would imagine looking at a congregation this size today, there's a lot of us in this house, we have tried to produce hope ourselves. And here's how we do it. We put hope in things that don't last. And when that thing or that relationship or that possession falters, flees, or fails, we're back at hopelessness. I'm talking about a hope that only God can produce. And so in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a very messy Election year, in the middle of magnified racial tensions, an uneasy economy, a blame shifting that we have not seen probably since the garden, and, and fear. What we need is volumes of hope. Volumes upon volumes of true good work in our heart, hope. And let me say it again you can't produce it. Your presidential candidate 
can't produce it, nor can more money, nor can more friends, nor can the, can the dissipation of a, of a virus. Those things do not produce hope. Only God can produce hope. So let's go to this passage together. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're relatively new to church, relatively new to the Bible, it's the 19th book of the New Testament, although it might be more helpful for you to know it's nine books from the end of the Bible, and it's right in between Philemon and the book of James. And so let's go to the book of Hebrews together, whether you have a copy of God's Word with you or you have your smartphone, go to that app, let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, and this is where we'll be really all morning long. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be at the very end of that chapter, beginning in verse 13. Hebrews chapter 6. Beginning in 13, we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 6. Let me read it to you first in its entirety. Then we'll kind of come back verse by verse as we often do or always do on Sunday morning and see what God has to say to us. Let me just call a timeout and say this. I'm assuming that's why you get up and go to church. is to see what God says to you. I mean, you can, you can probably catch a lot of sleep on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. A lot of you, as I look at who you are in here, a lot of you probably have some homework to catch up on. You could be doing at 10 o'clock. Some of you professionals, probably a long to-do list from work you could be doing at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But I'm assuming you got out of bed, took a shower, thank you, put clothes on, thank you again, and you, and you came here to hear what God says to you. So here's what God says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, here comes our word, to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Here's our word again. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Give you a little context here. All of Hebrews is kind of saying this, and once we get to chapter six of Hebrews, certainly this becomes the elevated stance of the Holy Spirit of God speaking to us. What he is doing is he's urging people to come all the way to Christ. He's urging people to throw themselves onto Christ to completely abandon everything else. And so if your Bible's open, you can just kind of gaze back up, if you don't mind, to chapter 6, verse 1, because this is the introduction of, of chapter 6, and it's kind of really the heartbeat of so much of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. What God is saying is, I want you to, to leave everything behind. He's saying, let's go. Let's come to Jesus. God is saying, you can trust me. Just come all the way to me. Believe me and have hope. Then God shows us here that Abraham did. Against unbelievable odds, Abraham came all the way to God. And now God is telling his people and everyone who would listen to his word, come all the way to Christ. Because we have a hope 
based on who God is. Not a hope on an external thing. I will repeat myself again. Not a hope that we have produced ourselves, but a hope that is based on who God is. Look at verse 13. This is such a fantastic verse. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. He is saying that here there's no one greater in the entire universe than God. It is God who, who makes the rules. The reason that God cannot lie, we'll look at that later, is whatever God says is truth. This is why God cannot lie. So by his very nature, he can't lie. Uh, look at verse 18. We kind of see that more specifically said. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We see that in the person of God, the, the very attributes of God, the very nature of God is that it's impossible for him to lie. He can't do it. So this morning, I want to show you four things, four things from this passage that truly can produce hope. If you're here today and you're feeling a little bit hopeless, or you know yourself well enough that sometimes your hope rises and sometimes your hope falls, I want to show you four things today from this passage that will truly do a good work of hope in your heart. Here's the first thing. Hope is produced by a God who cannot lie to us. Think of everyone who lies to us. Think of everyone who has lied to you. Think of everyone who has betrayed you. Think of everyone who has disappointed you. Think of everyone who has told you a half-truth. You see, hope is produced by a God who cannot lie to us. God has no ability to contradict himself. His promises are secure. Therefore, our hope is secure in him. Our hope is secure in who he is. So whatever he says is truth, again, he has no capacity whatsoever to lie. So when God makes a promise to his people, he will keep it. Now earlier, about 12 minutes ago or so, we, we sang a song. It's a, a Highland original song, although it comes straight from James chapter 1, verse 17. I did not know that, that Jared was going to be leading that song out today, but I'd already determined to use this verse today for the sermon, so I love how God does that. James chapter 1, verse 17, you'll see on the screen behind me, this verse came to my mind. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now certainly that verse is about the graciousness of God, the generosity of God, how God gives us gifts and not just gifts, but good gifts and not just good gifts, but perfect gifts. But this passage, verse 17 of James chapter one is also about his character. You see what it says there? There is no variation to him. In other words, there is no inequality to God. There is no disparity to God. Then it says there's no shadows to God, which simply means there's nothing shady about him. Nothing in him is, look at the last three words, due to change. God never deviates from his character. God never deviates from his promises. This is how we can have hope. So what was the promise that he gave to Abraham? I hope your Bible is still open. Verse 14, here comes the promise. Saying, surely, surely I will bless you. Let me stop right there. That word surely is a fascinating word in Greek because you use this word all the time and you have no idea you're speaking Greek. In fact, it's one of the very few words in the Bible that's the same in Greek as it is in Hebrew, the same word. And the word is, in Greek, main. The reason you say all the time, maybe you don't all the time, but if you pray, at the end of your prayer, you say that word. The word that we say is, amen. 
But here in Texas, we say it wrong, right? We say amen. But really, if you're to be a Greek speaker, or you Spanish speakers, you do say this correctly, amen. It means surely, like certainly. And so at the end of a prayer for dinner, and you go, amen, what you're saying is, yes, I, I agree with that person just said, if you're ever listening to a sermon and you're welcome to do this anytime you want to on a Sunday morning here at Highland, and this guy says something you agree with, you go, amen. You know why you say amen? What you're saying is, yeah, what that guy said. That's what amen means. It's certainly, I agree with this. And so God comes to Abraham and says, amen. Surely, Abraham, amen, Abraham. I'm gonna bless you, verse 14. I'm gonna multiply you. This was the promise of God to Abraham. Did he keep it? Did he keep it? It's the year 2020, and there are now 14.7 million seed of Abraham roaming the planet today, the Jewish people. God certainly kept this promise to Abraham when he said to him, I will bless you and I will multiply you. You better believe that God kept this promise despite the Moabites and despite the Amorites and despite the Assyrians and despite the Babylonians and despite Hitler's Third Reich, which wiped out six million Jews, despite PLO, despite Hamas, God continues to keep his promise to Abraham even today. But you say it didn't, it didn't look very good at the beginning. Because when God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm gonna bless you and multiply you. In fact, I'm gonna make you, he said earlier, a whole nation. Your, your generations behind you from your seed will be as many sands as there is upon the seashore, as many stars as there are in heaven. And certainly Abraham glanced at his 80-year-old wife at that point who had given him this many children, who was barren, and instead of Abraham saying, there's absolutely no way, he, after waiting, believed. He believed God because God doesn't lie. Number one again, let me just say it one more time. Hope is produced by a God who cannot lie to us. Who cannot lie to us. Uh, verse 15 again saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. Verse 14, verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently Waited. He patiently waited for what? He patiently waited for the promise. And then he believed God. In fact, he threw his whole life onto God and said, God, I'm going to trust you. Abraham fell into God and God caught him and gave him that promise. He believed God. Let me tell you something, sisters and brothers. You too can believe God. You may find yourself at the end. That's kind of where Abraham was, waiting and waiting and waiting. And maybe many of you today, you're in that waiting period, just kind of waiting for the next chapter. I'm just kind of waiting for God to come through. I'm kind of waiting for, for God to prove himself faithful to me. But let me say to you again, you can believe God. He will not, he cannot back out of his promises. God will never fail because he has no capacity of failure in his nature. God cannot lie to us. Here's the second thing, hope is produced by God's unchanging purposes for us. I mean, first of all, that hope is produced because of who he is. We're secure in God's name. We're secure in God's nature. But now we're secure in our hope because of God's purposes. This is fantastic, by the way. This is, this is so good. Abraham was secure in hope. Watch this. Because God had a purpose for him. What's the purpose? I'll repeat myself for the third time. 
Verse 14, here's the purpose. Surely I will bless you. Surely I will multiply you. That was the purpose that God had for Abraham. And God doesn't let his purposes get messed up. This was a purpose that God had for Abraham. Listen, God never violates his eternal purposes. And so Abraham was just as secure as the plans of God. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm, writes in Psalm 33, verse 11, the purposes of God stand forever. The purposes of God stand forever. He doesn't mess up his eternal purposes. So that's the purpose for Abraham. He would be blessed and he would multiply and create an entire nation, which is still in existence today. So what's God's purposes for you? The New Testament is filled over and over again. It's replete with promises to you as New Testament Christians of who you are in Christ, of his eternal purposes for you. I just picked one of them this week, and here's the one I picked. You'll see on the screen behind me, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Let me read to you God's purposes for you, and I pray that there's hope produced in this because these purposes for you are unchanging. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according, here's our word, to the purpose of his will. So God, according to his own purposes for you, says, here's the way I'm going to go with all of you who are followers of Christ. In my love, I will choose you. In my love, I will adopt you. In my love, I will make you holy and blameless before me. Now, you see, this is the sovereign side of God's plan. And church fam, this is a basis for our hope. God has purposed to love you. God has purposed to adopt you. And nothing can violate that. So the next statement I'm about to make, you can write in the front of your Bible if you want to, or put this as a tap on your forearm. You can write this down somewhere. Once you come into a relationship with Jesus, you are as secure as the eternal purposes of God. How safe are you, Christian? How established are you? How secure are you? Well, just as established as God's purposes are. Just as set and secure as God's eternal purposes are. There's a ton of hope in that statement. Once you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you are as secure forever as the eternal purposes of God. In other words, here's the easier way to say it. You won't be misplaced by God, Christian. You're established, you're set, you're secure. Here's the third thing. Hope is produced by a God who gave us his oath. Hope is produced. It's accelerated by a God who gave us his oath. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. Let's read this again. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes or all their arguments, an oath is the final confirmation. Or you, you and I might put it this way in today's vernacular. Uh, a, an oath is the final word. Like if you're disputing somebody in the Old Testament time and parts of the New Testament time, the oath becomes the final confirmation. Once you make a promise, once you make a swearing, if you will, then that dispute's over. That argument is over. People swear by something greater than themselves. All their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17, so when God desired 
to show more convincingly, as if he needed to convince us more, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So the explanation of an oath is right here in verse 16. It's when people swear by something greater than themselves. In other words, in making an oath, you swear by someone greater than yourself to end that argument, to end that dispute, which puts God in kind of a difficult place. Or if I can use an old word for a young crowd, it puts God in a pickle. Like, what is he supposed to do? Because who is greater than God? He can't swear by something greater than himself because no one is greater than himself. So what does God do in his great creativity? He decides to swear on himself. You know, in court, you raise your hand and you say, so help me God. This is God saying, so help me me. Like I, I commit to myself. I swear to myself, I swear on my own character, I swear on my own nature, I, I swear on my own attributes. You see, God didn't need to make that oath because his word has always been final. His word has always been good enough. His word is good without an oath, but to accommodate probably our weak faith, or maybe just to accommodate the human custom at that time, he makes an oath. You know when someone says to you, hey, are you gonna be there? Are you going to be at the party? Are you going to be in class? Are you going to be at work? And you say yes. And they look back to you and say, you promise? You know why they say you promise? Because at some point you didn't show up. At some point you weren't there. And so they're having to draw an oath out of you. Because at some point you did not show up. At some point your word was not good enough. And so people look at us and look at me and say, you promise? Like you'll, you'll really be there. You'll, you'll really show up. You'll really be at that party. You'll really be at church. You'll, you'll really be at work. The reason people look to us and say, you promise, is because our words aren't enough. But you see, God has always showed up. God is always there, which what I'm trying to say is he didn't need to give us this oath. Because his word has always been sufficient. He's always been there. There's, you know, there's a lot of people who hesitate. Maybe some in the house today, they hesitate going all the way into Christ. They hesitate just kind of falling into him, leaving behind the elementary teachings as we see here in chapter 6, verse 1. Leaving behind the elementary basic teachings and basic doctrines of Christ. There's a lot of people who hesitate to trust Jesus fully. And, and they wonder, should I? And maybe you wonder, can I? But you know what? You'll never know until you do. You'll never truly know if you can trust God until you truly trust God. And you just leave everything else behind and you fully pursue him. You fully trust him. You come all the way to Jesus. You'll never know until verse 18, until you flee to him for refuge and hold fast to hope. In the Old Testament, that phrase flee for refuge had a very specific meaning because in the Old Testament, if you were to accidentally kill somebody, accidentally hurt somebody to the point they could not work and they would lose their job, 
hurt somebody to the point that they would never truly recover. And maybe it's a little bit like Moses when he killed the Egyptian. I'm not so sure it was a, a purposeful killing, but he accidentally killed this Egyptian. So if you accidentally hurt somebody to the point they could not work, or you accidentally killed somebody, what a Jewish person would do in the Old Testament is they would flee to the cities of refuge. And there in the cities of refuge, the avenger would not come after them. I'm not talking about Captain America, but small a, avenger would not, not come after them. They were safe in these high places. The, the cities of refuge were often on, on a high platitude or high plateau. They were set up there and they were, they were safe. They were secure. The Bible talks about this in Numbers 35 and in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Joshua chapter 20. These cities of refuge where people would flee to the cities for refuge. Here's what God is saying. I believe God is saying to us. I think this is why he came to church. What is God saying? God is saying, you'll never know my hope until in desperation you run to me for refuge. And listen, if you never flee to God, you'll never know how faithful he is. One last thing, and this is stout, number four. Hope is produced by a God who gave us his son as a priest. Hope is produced, hope is generated then by a God who gave us his son as a priest. And we know who that son is, verse 20, Jesus Christ. But look at verse 19. So we have this as a sure and as a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, there's our word, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is beautiful language, poetic we could spend weeks, I, I won't, I'm kind of wrapping up this sermon right now, but we could spend weeks talking about a hope that enters, a hope that enters in. What is that hope? That hope is Jesus himself, but also that hope is our salvation in Jesus. And what does it say here in verse 19? It's an anchor for our soul. Th th those are goosebump words, anchors for our soul. Hope is an anchor for our soul. It's both sure, it's steadfast. And what does it do? It enters behind the curtain. Your Bible might say it enters behind the veil. What he's saying here, family, is that we have security. We have an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor. So your soul, when you come to God, is no longer drifting. Your soul, when you come to Christ, it is now anchored. And you might say, well, preacher God, where is my soul anchored? Well, here's the answer, in the Holy of Holies in the presence of the glory of God, if you will, God's house, God's most holy place in the presence of God's glory. This is where it says our, our hope is now found, our soul is now anchored. You see in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go behind that curtain, could go behind that veil. No other man could go there. And it was just one day, and all these prescriptions had to be followed perfectly even to get behind that veil, to get behind that, that curtain. But now we have a great high priest, which is what all Hebrews is about, this great high priest, Jesus, who performed the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And he enters now into that most holy place, God's holy of holy. In fact, the, word, the, the book of Hebrews says that we now have a living way, a new way to enter into the presence of God, that is the body of Christ. And so when I put my faith in Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, here's what happens. He anchors us to God inside the curtain. He anchors us to God inside the veil, inside the curtain of the most holy place. You see, that's security and that is hope. So Jesus went in, verse 20, 
where Jesus has now gone behind the curtain into the glory of God, the fullness of the brilliance of God, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Why? On our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he was a new kind. Jesus is a new kind of priest. I don't have time to explain it, but just as Melchizedek was a new kind of priest in the Old Testament, Jesus went in into the very presence of the glory of God. And so when I put my faith in Christ, I am held by Jesus in the presence of God's glory. You might ask this question, how long am I anchored there? Here's the answer, verse 20, see it, it's good. How long is Jesus our high priest? Forever. So here's my last statement for you today, Christian. You are anchored to God forever. How set is your salvation? How secure is your life? How established is your hope? You are anchored to God forever. So my dear Highland family, we have hope because of the nature of God. We have hope because of the purposes of God. We have hope because of the oath of God. We have hope because Christ is our great high priest. God has given to us the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loses none of his own. And that should begin to create a good work of hope in our lives. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the hope we have in Jesus. He is life and love. He is our song, our salvation. Jesus, our eyes are fixed on you. We thank you that you went in on our behalf into the radiant, brilliant glory of God, and you hold us there, an anchor, an anchor for our souls, and we hold fast to this hope. God, we praise you today that we're anchored to God forever because of what you did on the cross for us. It's the name of Jesus that we pray and how joyfully the name of Jesus we sing. Amen.